Reading today is from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Good morning again, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church. And uh, it really is lovely to see all of you here on this snowy, finally wintry morning. I feel like we've had such a mild winter. Um, but I always, my, I, I have these opposite directions when I wake up to snow. But six days a week, I wake up to snow and I'm like, a delighted child because I'm like, oh, it's so pretty. Oh, I can go sledding. I don't, but I could. <laughs> I could drink hot chocolate by the window. I'd do that. But on Sunday mornings when I wake up to snow, I'm sort of crestfallen because I'm like, oh, will it keep people from church? Will it keep people from coming together? Will it keep us from this sort of family reunion that we throw once a week in the name of Jesus to come together and feel a little less alone in the world? And so, though I am so sad that the weather has kept many from us this morning, it's so good to see each and every one of you here, my family in Christ, my family in justice, my family in liberation. So thank you for being here. We are kind of turning the corner towards the end of our series, Talking with God, a series on the Lord's Prayer. And in this series, we've been talking in some ways a kind of narrow way about what it means to talk to God, talking to God in the way that Jesus taught us to pray this very specific prayer. The Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, the prayer that we pray before communion every time we gather and share that meal. And we've been moving through it and seeing how many radical ideas are embedded in this prayer. And, and I'm seeing as we're preaching through this, I learn as we learn together, just so you know, I don't like emerge, you know, fully formed, having all of these things like in the bank. I learn each week as I study and pray about what we are talking about together. And so as I've been learning through this prayer, I'm astounded. I, I feel like I shouldn't be. I know this stuff, and yet I'm still astounded by how radical Jesus is and how profound God is in taking these few simple words and calling us to a totally different way of life. 
God's invitation that when we go to God in prayer, that we subvert everything that is wrong with the world and come to God openly with trust and anticipation that things will be made right. And so today, we come to the part about temptation. Temptation is, I, I, I struggle to even put this on the list of like, oh, okay, that's going to be a weird one. Like, I wonder what folks see when they look uh, at a church and say, okay, the topic today is temptation. I better gird my loins and, you know, come on in. Hope the pastor doesn't know what goes on in the back of my mind. But it's not really about that. It's certainly not about calling out our deepest, darkest secrets and saying, bad. Even though that may be the way of the church in modern America, that is not the way of Jesus. And we see that throughout Jesus' ministry, that that Jesus' ministry is concerned with where temptation leads us. It's concerned with what happens, what the consequences are to ourselves and to other people. But Jesus is not running around with a list of do-nots, ready to slap our hands or call us out, or worse, disown us as God's children. That's never God's intention. Jesus comes and proclaims a different way, a better way. And we see in the Lord's Prayer here that after saying all of these beautiful things, after naming our God, our parent in heaven, under whom we can all claim the authority of family and love, after saying, give us the things that we need, Allow us to trust in you for provision. Bring your kingdom here on earth. Upend the systems of power that are hurting us and bring a different kind of way. Erase our debts. Make us free. Bring us into liberation. After proclaiming all of those beautiful things, Jesus instructs us to pray. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. Or, as some folks say, save us from temptation and deliver us from the evil one. So why now? Why, after proclaiming all of those different powerful truths that God is good, that all will be made right, that in the end we can and we do and we believe and God is coming and God will provide, And all will be liberated and all debts will be erased and all will be forgiven and there is nothing that can hold us back. Why now? Say, and save us from the time of trial. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Well, see, when Jesus is teaching us this prayer, he's not just teaching us a prayer for our own experience. But Jesus is speaking directly out of his own. One of the first things that happens in Jesus' course of ministry, this is actually before, remember a little while ago I mentioned the uh, mission statement or Twitter bio of Jesus? His first big public message. This story that we heard today actually happens before that. Jesus' public life begins with a baptism It's, in some accounts, a very public event, and in other accounts, it's more private. But there's this moment where God says, you're ready, it's time. God says either to the whole gathering or to Jesus alone, 
You are my son, whom I love, and in whom I am well pleased. And this is sort of an invitation to say, you're ready, go, teach, lead. Lead the people in my way. And that thing, the way, that's actually another name for Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way. And we think of Jesus as a person, we think of Jesus as a figure or even as a sacrifice, but the way Jesus talks about himself includes the way. The way to this kingdom, the way to this different and better life. Jesus is the way and shows us the way. We are called onto the path, and Jesus is the path. But Jesus has to decide whether he's up for this. And so after the baptism, after God says, I trust you, I believe in you, you are me, you are my son, you are the way, teach my people the way, Jesus then has to go into a period of discernment. And according to this text, the Spirit leads him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, whenever we encounter stories like this, part of the question I believe in most people's minds is like, is this real? Like, did this actually happen? Are we taking this in a literal way or not? If that question hasn't occurred to you, that's great, but I want you to consider it now. So, did this really happen in this way? Did Jesus go into the desert? Did Jesus stop eating and drinking for 40 days? Did Jesus converse with personified evil? And I want to offer you my answer. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know exactly, but it's not quite the point. And so I want to invite us, in that not knowing, in that being unsure, to entertain this as bigger than something that maybe happened, but as a story that may or may not be factually true, it might be, but as a story that God has given us to understand ourselves and God. So what if, what if we began this story with once upon a time, once upon a time, Jesus, the Christ, the way, the Son of God, went into the desert. He didn't eat or drink for 40 days. And he was tempted by the devil. Sounds like a really baller entry to a story, yeah? Like, that's like setting up good and evil and like, where is this going? And it sets the stage for this important conversation that Jesus has with the devil, outlining what it means to be tempted from the perspective of Jesus, which is the perspective of God. Now, we don't know fully if Jesus is tempted because, in addition to being fully divine, he's also fully human. This could be the humanity of Jesus arguing with the divinity of Jesus. Do I go the human route or the godly route? But that presumes a pretty negative humanity in Jesus. What if these are the things that actually tempt God? What if these are the things that come up when we, made in God's own image, tempt us? And so we see this story, this pattern of three, this pattern that I was taught to call guns, butter, and magic. So we're still squarely in the realm of mythology, yeah? Guns, butter, and magic. 
This was terms, these were terms actually given to me by, by my mentor in Chicago when I was a community organizer. Guns, butter, and magic are the ways that the world builds power for change. Guns, coercion, domination, the power to force someone to do something by, by imposition, by domination. Butter is usually thought of as bribery, but it can be simpler than that. It can be providing any kind of material aid. And it doesn't mean that just because somebody is using butter that the people don't need butter. But it says, I'll give you what you need or what you want. I'll give you the material gain if you do what I say. And then magic. Magic is the one actually that the church is most guilty of. Holding up a figure or figures. Sometimes that's Jesus. More often it's pastors or priests. And saying, this magic figure controls your fate. We can prove it through miracles. We can prove it through charismatic leadership. We can dazzle you with snake oil presentations. We can tell you that your eternal fate hangs in the balance. And all you have to do is everything I say. Guns, butter, and magic. These are the classic methods of coercion and power in earthly realms. When I was a community organizer, I saw this on the ground in real, meaningful ways. In Chicago, there were a few ways to get things done, and they were all corrupt. <laughs> there was a phrase that people spoke really commonly and really casually, a joke that everyone knew. It was, vote early and often. And it was a reference to voter fraud. It was a reference to the way that things worked there, that everything was sort of planned and coerced, manipulated behind the scenes. It was called the machine. The Chicago political machine. And anybody trying to do any good in Chicago had to encounter the machine. And it felt unbreakable, unmanageable. It had such a stronghold especially during the years that I was organizing. And it was really tempting to organize in the way of the machine. You grease a few palms, you show up at the right press conferences, you be supportive and not critical of certain policies or certain people, you turn out votes for particular politicians. And we saw some of our other organizers working with grassroots communities get swept right up into this. We saw people go from street-level organizing to city aldermen in no time. And before you could blink, they too were part of the machine. And what they would always say is, well, once I get in, I'll use my power to make it different. Guess what never happened? Many of those same community organizers, many of those same activists who were so noble in the beginning of their careers, once they got into the machine, all of a sudden, now they've got corruption charges against them. Somehow they always seem to wiggle out. But the machine was a huge temptation for me as an organizer. It felt so expedient. We were laboring hour after hour, day after day in church basements, 
having meetings about what we could do to change the school-to-prison pipeline, to protect people in nursing homes who were underfunded and undercared for, to find some sort of affordable housing for people who were on the streets or in cramped living quarters unsafely. We had real things to accomplish, and everyone kept encouraging us to just get into the machine. That's when you can make a real difference. And it was really difficult to hold that position as an outsider. But we would teach. We would teach, actually, on this very, very text. We would teach because that nagging feeling inside of us wouldn't go away anytime we did encounter the machine. I remember going to Springfield, Illinois. It's the capital. It's where everything got decided at a state level, even though most of it uh, was influenced by Chicago. And I remember going by myself to Springfield once. And I remember uh, a, a state senator inviting me out for drinks with a few other politicians. And those drinks turned into drinks at another location and then an after party, and we were out till like two in the morning. And the whole time I saw these kinds of negotiations, these sort of not even backroom deals, but the party politics, the, the way that things moved, the schmoozing, the jokes about corruption, and the let's just have another round. And I remember calling my boss, poor guy, at two in the morning, and saying, never send me back here without a busload of people. Because I had experienced another kind of power, a different kind of power, one that pushed hard against the mechanisms of the machine rather than greasing the way in. And that was community organizing. That was this sort of mass organizing of people this grassroots effort to bring people from outside positions of power and press in on that machine until it broke or ground to a halt and had to acknowledge us. And even though that was painful and it was difficult and it required so much energy, it felt fundamentally different than inserting oneself into those halls of power. And so, I became a believer. The only power I'm interested in is collective power. The only power I'm interested in is the kind of power that can topple this machine, not from the inside, not through incrementalism, not through finding my seat at that table, but through turning that table over with a crowd of riled up people. And we see Jesus doing this. Once he's in ministry, this is very clearly the way of Jesus. Jesus doesn't march into Jerusalem and say, I would like to be high priest. Jesus doesn't march up to the Roman guard and say, count me in. Jesus organizes with the peasants in the rural areas outside of those halls of power, gathers masses of people, and then descends on the machine to disrupt it. Jesus is the way, a different way, a grassroots way, a collective way, a way with hope and vision of a different kind of kingdom, a kind of kingdom where either no one is king or king means something altogether different, a kind of kingdom where hierarchies are leveled, 
a kind of kingdom where all have what they need and no one can be coerced by it. A kind of kingdom where the power is shared. But before Jesus can commit to this, Jesus must go through the trial, through the temptation to test every other way. Are we sure? Are we sure we want to do it the hard way? And so, Jesus goes. He's not being punished. He's not being tortured. This trial is about something else. It's an acknowledgement that there are other ways that pull at our hearts. And in many ways, this story is a Thank you. So this trial, it's an acknowledgement that God knows these ways, that God has been uh, considering all options, <laughs> that God actually understands the things that pull at our hearts, the things that lead us away from kingdom, the things that tempt us toward the ways of earthly power. Jesus knows what can lure us away, and Jesus has encountered those also. And so... We go with Jesus into the desert. I'd really love to have the text pulled back up again if we can, kind of zoom back. So Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Well, we got it there. So Jesus here, in the most simple, direct way, we could say, oh, well, Jesus is hungry. Jesus is starving. Jesus has been without food or water for 40 days and nights. And Jesus himself might be tempted by what he needs. Jesus himself might be tempted to believe that there is not enough, that the materials that God has provided for him. The call of God is not enough. And so, he's going to make some butter for himself. But this is about more than just Jesus in this moment. This is an invitation to butter as power, to build the kingdom on that material wealth, to build the kingdom by saying, here, have what you need, follow me, depend on me for it. And this is complicated because Jesus does give people bread. Jesus does give people the loaves and fishes. Jesus does heal people's ailments. And yet, what is Jesus' response when he's invited to just provide and say, everyone will depend on me for bread, and that is how I will rule? But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus wants our material needs to be met, and that is very clear from everything he does in ministry. And also, he doesn't want us to be 
in this position of begging for our need underneath. This is still a position of power over, power that says, I distribute what you have. But we see instead the way, the true way, the way of God is to lavish on us what we need. The way of human beings then is to hoard it. The way of human beings, as we learned in our conversation about daily bread, is to not trust that there is enough, to hoard it from one another. And then, in that hoarding, those who have more have power over those who have less. Jesus isn't interested in this game of butter coercion. Jesus says we need more than the substance of those materials. We need love. We need trust. We need community. And so no, Jesus isn't going to be the one to hoard all the butter and dole it out at his whim. So then the devil took him to the holy city, placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against stone. Jesus here is being asked to perform a miracle. Fly! Throw yourself off. Dazzle the people. You have the power. You're the son of God. So why don't you just throw yourself off these rocks, save yourself, and lead people that way? This charismatic leader, this one who holds all the cards, the one who can dazzle you. And part of the problem then is that it comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of doubt and of question. You can't question a miracle. You can't question a snake oil salesman. It's all flash. And so, Jesus rejects this too. As I mentioned earlier, this is the one that the church is most guilty of. The church is most guilty of casting Jesus in this miracle man role, this, this role that is going to provide you the magic key into magic heaven, but only if you do what I say. This is a different kind of coercion. This is the way that cults work, that magic charisma that can't be denied, that leader who holds all the cards the one who dazzles but has no substance. And Jesus rejects this too. Jesus rejects this saying, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is something that we like to do all the time. We test the will of God. We look for signs. We say, prove it to me. We want to turn God into this magic fairy godmother. But again, that's turning God, turning Jesus into something we can't question, that's beyond our understanding, who is not here to be among us, one of us, incarnate, human being and God, but is to be other, our magic fixer, who we can never doubt. And Jesus says, no, that's not how I want to do it. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. This 
is the guns. This is the devil saying, hey, all of the power of the world, every kingdom here on earth, you know what a kingdom is. You know what a kingdom is down here. All of those will be yours. Just come my way. Do it my way. Do it the way of violence and power and domination. You'll get there so fast. You won't have to convince any of these people to love each other. You can force them to do it. You can just train your armies on them. And Jesus again says, no. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came down and waited on him. Jesus is the way. And we see in this process how Jesus chooses to be the way and embody the way and what Jesus chooses against. The ways of the world, the ways of coercion. What does it mean to worship God only and not the devil, not the power, not the guns? What does it mean to trust in God and not test God, not require that God perform some miracle some dazzling feat in order for us to be community, in order for us to love one another? What does it mean to trust in God's provision, even in the desert, even when we are famished? That God's provision actually will feed us more than the meager bread offered by the devil in the world. Ultimately, God is being tested by all of the same things that pull us away from the kingdom. The devil is asking Jesus to settle for a lesser way, a human way, an earthly way, the machine, the machines of earthly power. So why would Jesus be tempted by those things in particular? I see a pattern here a pattern of shortcut, lack of trust, and control. You see, the devil preys on what Jesus actually wants. The devil doesn't do things willy-nilly here. The devil actually goes after what Jesus wants to accomplish, Jesus' best intentions. He says, you're hungry. Jesus knows his people are hungry. Jesus knows his people are suffering now. Jesus knows that people cry out, that bellies are rumbling, that people are dying of hunger. And so the devil's temptation is take a shortcut, amass wealth, find a way, just get all of the material, make it happen. Do an army if you have to, do it through military might, do it through miracles whatever you have to do. And in that moment, Jesus has to trust. Jesus has to trust that there is enough and actually that only everyone will get enough if we follow the way, the way of the kingdom, the way of upending hierarchies, the way of making sure that no one actually has all of the material wealth to be able to choose to dole it out as they see fit but a world wherein everyone has access to food and to their needs being met, the way that God intended, the way that God created, the way, the kingdom. 
where no one has the butter to give out because everyone has what they need. There are other shortcuts. Miracles are a kind of shortcut. If you see a crowd of people and you want them to do your bidding, all you have to do is make them amazed and afraid. Jesus did do miracles, but it's really interesting because in this, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a real pattern here of how Jesus acts immediately after doing his miracles. Does anybody know what it is, what he tells people? Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anybody I did that, guys. Jesus is performing these miracles to meet the needs of his people. But he's like, don't tell anyone. Jesus isn't trying to gain a following through these miraculous events. Jesus' love is so powerful that it is healing, that it is providing. And that extends to Jesus' followers and disciples. And Jesus says, you will do greater things even than these. But don't tell anybody about these miracles, lest they follow me for that reason. Jesus wants us to follow his teachings. Jesus wants us to catch his vision for the world as it could be. Jesus wants the community, the kingdom that God has promised. And not through flashy miracles that inspire awe but also fear. Not through a kind of leadership that can't hold up to scrutiny and question. And so these miracles, we may delight in them, but they are not the source of the power of God. And then finally, control. Jesus would have so much control. Jesus would be able to just do it himself. This is the thing that I see in the good people on the ground who end up greasing their way into the machine, who say, well, if I could just be in charge of this machine, if I could just find my peace, if I could just amass enough power, then I could do it. But that's not the way either. Being the people of God involves trusting one another and trusting the ways of God, being collaborative, being collectivist. And you know what? That is scary. That is so, so frightening. To lean not only on God, but on one another, trusting that the goodness of God will prevail, which, by the way, is the promise. But we failed each other enough. Now, we failed ourselves enough that we should know better too, but Somehow we continue to think that if we were in charge, it would be okay. Has anybody ever seen Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog? It's great. I, 10 out of 10 would recommend. But there's, it follows, the main character is actually a villain. And, it, and, and he's a really likable villain. And you understand a lot about him. You empathize with him. And there's a moment where he says, the world is a mess and I just need to rule it. How many of us feel that way? That if only we were in charge, we would clean up this mess. And yet, that places that trust, that control, that power internally to us. It no longer shares it with all of creation, with God, as it was intended. These are the ways of the machine. So what are the ways of the kingdom? That trust, that long-term view, the leaning into God's provision, the knowing that suffering is coming. 
and knowing that suffering is along the path towards freedom and that freedom cannot be shortcutted, cannot be coerced, cannot be machined into being. What are the ways that you are lured, that you are tempted? Out of those three, those shortcuts, where you, you want to accomplish your goal and you know that your goal is good, but you are willing to just mm, take a little bit of a shortcut to get there. Or perhaps control. Perhaps you really do just keep acting in your life. Like if you were in control, if you had control, if you had the things that you needed, then everything would be okay. And you're not willing to trust or lean on the people around you or the God who loves you. For me, it's that third one. No trust in God. No trust in hope. This is a problem of my entire life, and it's the easiest way for the devil to get me, is when I lose a sense of hope. When I forget that God is good, that God is the God of the desert as well as the God of the garden. For me, when I lose hope, tomorrow seems impossible, and the tomorrow's after that. And I lose the will to engage in today. I try and just get by. Now at my lowest, for me, that involved substance abuse, heroin addiction. I had no hope. I had no trust that God was good. So why show up to my life? Why show up to the people I love? I can't. Now it had a tinge of control and shortcut in there too. If I could control my feelings, if I could dial down the pain, then maybe I'd be okay. And most certainly it was a shortcut. I wanted to not be in so much pain. And so I found the most immediate way to do it, through an IV. <laughs> I gotta tell you something, it didn't work. And it almost killed me over and over and over again. In the 13 years that I've been clean, I've realized that there is no shortcut to being fully alive. I've realized that being fully alive and being invested in the kingdom requires that I trust other people and that they will let me down. And it still requires that. I've learned that my control is really limited and actually not always a great thing. That me being in control, me commanding the armies, me coercing my body, me trying to manipulate the world around me, it doesn't work. Somehow always doubles back to hurt me and the people I love. And I've begun to learn that God is good. That God does not abandon me in the desert. That God is with me in the worst times when I want anything to take the pain away. And we all do this in different ways. Some of us fall into substance abuse. Others fall into different traps. And each time 
We are making a horrible trade-off. I picked heroin in place of actual peace. I used drugs to quiet my mind instead of actually finding grounding. How many of us do this? We trade love. We trade intimacy and joy for the sex that we can find right now. We trade true security and lasting trust in God and ourselves. We trade community for relentless pursuit of material being, material wealth. If I can only get enough money, or if I can get the right clothes or car, if I can get the right look, I'll be okay, I'll be loved, I'll be secure. And we trade that for the communities of love that would surround us. How many of us pour ourselves into work or projects or success, saying, what I do defines me. I will be made whole through proving my worth, rather than dwelling in the worth that was given to us purely by God from the moment we were made. These are the temptations that draw us into the machines of earthly power at the expense of the beauty and love of the kingdom, the way, the blessedness of God. And in every moment where you feel drawn off the way and into the machine, know that God doesn't judge the pull of your heart. God gave us a story about God's heart being pulled in those very directions. And yet, Jesus says, no. And Jesus shows us a better way. We know that we cannot strong arm our way through this world. We can't strong our way, arm our way through our hearts. And so, it is in humility that we are taught to pray, not only, God, save us from the time of trial, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from temptation. Save us. And that is our first act of trust. In our temptation, instead of trying to be strong, trying to find a shortcut, trying to trust only in ourselves and remain in control, the first act of the way of Jesus is to say, God, I need you. God, I need support. Be with me. Save me. Be my God in the desert as well as the garden. Will you pray with me? God of all things, God of power and might, God of ease and compassion, we thank you, God, that you are not a God that reflects the machines of our world. We thank you, God, that you are not a God who hoards butter to bribe people with or a God who lifts up armies to coerce people with, or even a God who does miracles so that we might not question. We thank you, God, for being a God who provides for all that no one can hold material over another's head. We thank you for being a God that casts kings from their thrones and disarms armies so that all may be safe, not through domination, but through peace. We thank you, God, for being a God of miracle through us rather than against us, a God whose miracles show up most powerfully in your people 
and not to manipulate us. God, may we learn your way. And when we are tempted, may we pray faithfully. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. Amen.